Hi, everybody. This is John Montoya. And this is John Parings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. This is episode 47, Infinite Banking for Children. In this episode, we're going to discuss the infinite banking system for children. Sometimes it's called the Rockefeller method. So we'll go into that. We'll discuss the pros and cons. What are the restrictions? That is the rules of thumb that you should be aware of uh, when you should consider IBC for your kids. And is it the same design as an adult IBC policy? So thanks for tuning in. And John, let's get started with, with this episode. Yeah, I think this will be good. You know, um, we're kicking some things off here with rules of thumb around buying life insurance with the intent of implementing the infinite banking concept for your children. And one of the it's a it's a super common question that comes up where, you know, especially people in their maybe 40s or 50s start, you know, thinking about how they can improve their children's financial lives. So they'll, they'll ask, you know, maybe I'd, I'd like to buy a policy on my child. And so the, the first rule of thumb that we have is that the, when you buy insurance for a child, and by the way, we did uh, an episode that we'll link to in the show notes called who should you insure first, which I think is episode 21. And we'll link to that in the show notes and that that'll be a good complimentary episode to this one. But, um, the insurance companies are going to require at least one of the parents to be insured, right? And there are exceptions to that if, if maybe both the parents are uninsurable. But in general, the rule of thumb is the parents need to own life insurance first before they can buy life insurance for a child, who, especially if they're a minor. So we're in this episode, like you can have adult children, which we'll, we'll get into, but we're kind of talking about um, juveniles in this particular case. Yeah, 18 or younger. So that's one of the rules of thumb. For a juvenile policy, it's typically 18 or younger. And if you have multiple kids, 18 or younger, they all need to be insured equally. So no plain favorites. Uh, For example, I've got three kids, they each have their own IBC policy, and it's all funded equally. No paramedic exam typically is needed. Um, However, depending on your child's height and weight, uh, there may be an examiner who comes out to simply take a look at your child and have them step on a scale. I have had a couple instances where a child was declined. And the reason why is due to height and weight. Be aware that this isn't one of those things where every single child is going to qualify. I know we, we tend to take that for for granted, you know, that kids are always in good health. But uh, the reality is, is that this is a policy that does need to be applied for, and it has to be approved. And so, you know, it it happens, uh, especially nowadays, where child obesity is more of a common thing. Uh, Just be aware that if, if your child happens to be a little bit on the heavy side, make sure you're asking the advisor, you know, what, what is the recommended height weight for a child at this age, and we can tell you. So child obesity is a red flag and a potential decline. Going One further, uh, the earliest you can insure one of your children is at the two-week-old mark. 
Let's say uh, you're pregnant, you're expecting a child, and you want to get that policy started as soon as possible. Well, you have to wait at least two weeks from the date of birth. And there's also some um, there's some rules of thumb around you know how much insurance the parent needs to have. There are some multiples in terms of like you know how much how much the child can be insured for relative to how much the parent or parents have in life insurance. And those are different in different states. But, you know, twice as much is a good rule of thumb. Sometimes it's a little bit less than that. But um, it uh, th those are some of the things that will also come up that you can talk to your agent about. Yeah. And also, too, it's just one of the parents that has to have that minimum amount of death benefit in order for the child to have a policy. To give you a numbers example, let's say one of the parents has $1 million worth of life insurance coverage. It can also be a term policy. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a permanent policy like a whole life policy. It can be a term policy. But let's say that one of the two parents has a million dollars in coverage, then as a general rule of thumb, the insurance company will approve up to a half a million in death benefit coverage on the child. Now, what that actually equates out to in terms of premium, that's really where we need to run the numbers. Uh, just to give you kind of a, a heads up on what we see on our side, uh, I'll give you an example of my daughter's whole life policy where the funding premium uh, baseline premium was 2000 a year plus another 2000 in PUA. Well, that generated a face amount of over $400,000 uh, from the time of issue. Well, if you think about it, what child needs 400 plus thousand of death benefit? It's not the reason why we did the policy. We did it to establish her own banking system uh, for her entire life. But because of her age, every dollar of premium generates more dollars of death benefit from day one. So in that example, I had to have at least a million dollars worth of death benefit in order for my daughter to qualify for her policy. Just keep those rough numbers in mind. You have to be insured. You have to, generally speaking, have twice the amount of death benefit of the initial face amount that your child's policy will start with. Absolutely. And what are some of the benefits of insuring a child and, and why, why would a parent want to, uh, want to consider this? Well, first and foremost, we want to lock in our child's health. That may seem like a crazy notion, but with everything that's happening today medically, I mean, we, we see the rise of autism, childhood diabetes, and then you have all these other afflictions that can hit us really at any age. And the one thing that we always take for granted is that we're going to be in good health our entire lives. I wish that were the case, but it absolutely is not. So just from a health standpoint, to be able to lock in a financial system, we're not even talking about the death benefit, just the financial system of infinite banking and being able to establish for your child that they will never have to rely on a traditional bank for their life, it's huge. But in order to do that, you need to lock in that insurability. So 
I, I would start there, locking in insurability, because, yeah, we can't take our health for granted. And especially, you know, our kids, we just assume that if they are in good health, that'll last. And knock on wood, we always hope that's the case, but anything can happen. So this prepares us for any future event health-wise and allows our children to basically have something set in motion for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, you know, you're, you're locking it in. So you're locking in the ability with their health, but I would also say you could potentially also be locking in their mindset for the future. So, you know, I, I remember, you know, my mom sat me down and tried to explain to me what compound interest was when I was a, when I was a young and, and it just, it didn't, I mean, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. I'm, I'm going to go buy a bike with my paper route money. And, uh, you know, so it didn't really sink in, but if you actually, you know, lead by example and you, you fund a policy when a child is, you know, before they're at an income earning age, you, you get a kid that reaches their twenties and they already have hundreds of thousands of dollars in a cash value life insurance policy. All of a sudden that becomes very real to them and they can, they can see what's possible with, um, you know, having some financial discipline and, and some financial know-how, like knowing how to do it. You know, a lot of people think that they kind of take a negative approach to it and they're like, yeah, well, if, if, you know, if I died and my kid had a bunch of money or if my kid just ran into a bunch of money, he'd blow it. And that might be true, but that's an education problem, right? And, and I think that there are also a lot of kids for example, when my father passed away, and we're not talking about death benefit right now, but we're just talking about mindset. When my father passed away, I got a very small windfall, but I wanted to, it made me actually have skin in the game to want to preserve that, right? And how to, it made me want to preserve it and make it even better. And so I think, you know, there's something to be said for showing your kids, you know, what's possible uh, as opposed to just kind of telling them they should be doing all these things. And then, you know, some people get it and some, some people like me it took, took a little bit longer to get there. I love that you bring up this point because it's something that I was thinking about over the weekend. I was having a financial conversation with my wife and we were talking about her financial journey and I was relating how mine was just so different. Uh, her parents never talked about money in the household and they were constantly struggling from one life event to the next. And it really took a toll on my wife as far as her relationship with money. And I compared it to mine where my mom, even though she didn't understand life insurance, you know, she didn't know anything about IBC. It, you know, that wasn't really around back then. But what she did do, what she did pass on to me was this discipline of saving and any birthday money, any Christmas money that I would get, it would go into my passport savings account and she would proudly show me, you know, what the interest rate was. And back in the eighties, you know, it was banks were actually paying something. And this instilled into me this discipline of saving for the future. And I was thinking about that this weekend and the impact that this mindset that my mom helped passed on to me, it basically helped me to develop a sense of security and knowing that by continuing 
to save by developing this discipline, I would be able to write out life events in the future. But just that initial mindset of being a saver at a very young age, uh, the, the impact that you listeners can have with your children by teaching them to be discipline savers, to teach them where to park money as a foundation for wealth building, you can have an incredible impact by teaching your kids the strategy and the forward thinking of saving money. And when you apply IBC on top of it, I think you really set them up to take financial control of their lives. So uh, I'm glad you bring up that point, John. Yeah. And you know, the, the cash value can be used for anything. A lot of parents, they have this really burning need sometimes to, you know, they have this idea in their head. They're like, well, my parents paid for my college, so I'm going to pay for my kids' college, and that's the gift that I'm going to give to them. So just as this is just one example, right? And what if you, instead of paying for their college and just never seeing that money in your family ever again, like that just goes away forever, what if you instead saved that money in a life insurance policy that your child owned or in yours, right? But right now we're talking about juvenile policies. What if you saved in their policy and you said, hey, here, Here's, here's the money. You can use this to pay for college or you can just, before I assign it over to you, you know, you can either use it to pay for college or use it to go to more of a vocational thing or um, use it to start a business. Like what if they were responsible for that cash value, knowing that it was theirs and knowing that they, if they wanted to keep it, they would have to pay it back because, you know, a lot of times when parents pay for things it doesn't doesn't always get paid back because there's no skin in the game for for the child so you know those are just uh, you know some off the top of the head um, examples that I can think of that you know would really instill a, uh, a sense of ownership for the child going through life and as they get started in their you know income earning years on that note too as the parent and payor on the policy, you are actually the owner of the policy. Now you can transfer ownership of the policy to your kids at a future age. And this is something that I initially had planned on doing with each of my three kids. I set up these policies for them and I figured out, well, you know what, in their twenties, I'll go ahead and, and transfer the ownership over to them. But then after a couple of years and, you know, dwelling on it, I was thinking, you know what, I don't know, I hope my kids are going to be responsible and disciplined, good with money, but it's no guarantee. So if they're not, why would I want to transfer ownership of this policy that I've been funding their entire lives? That didn't make much sense to me. And then I thought further about it. And I was like, you know what, if they are being responsible and disciplined, and I've taught them all the tenets of IBC so that it's passed on to them, they're going to start their own policies and they'll own those policies. And what's going to happen is I'm going to continue to own these policies on them and just my way of thinking. But I got to thinking, well, you know what? When I get into my 70s, maybe my 80s, and I hope I get there, well, there's going to be a financial incentive for each of my kids to check in on me. Why is that? Well, there's this 
really nice whole life policy that has been well-funded during their lifetime that's compounding every single year and who stands to benefit from the ownership of that policy once I pass on? It's them. So in a sort of backwards kind of way, it kind of ties them to me and being interested in my well-being when I'm older, not that they wouldn't be, but you know, it's always uh, it's always interesting how money does play a role sometimes in in relationships, and knowing that they will have an inheritance coming from me in the form of a policy that I took out on them might, maybe I don't know, but it might get them thinking, well, hey, you know what, I should stay in Dad's good graces because. I've got this coming. So maybe I hope they'll continue to call me at least once a week and and we uh, make time to see each other. But that's my hope anyway. And so it, it just got me down this line of thinking that, well, you know what? These policies don't actually have to transfer over to them in their 20s and when they become of a certain age. I want to make sure that they're a good steward of this wealth. And they're going to have to demonstrate that to me over their lifetime. And my hope ultimately is that in doing so, it'll strengthen our relationship and it'll naturally just be a part of them always being in my life. So an additional benefit maybe to having a a policy on your kid. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a great um, example of the other side of things, you know, where, if you're funding a policy and you own it, um, you, you do want to make sure they're they're going to be a good steward. I I, I think I, I would believe that I'd want to give them the opportunity to prove it. And but you, you can still do that and maintain control. And that's where some things like you know strategic trusts come into play. But then on that on that note of what's going to happen in your later years, you know life insurance is one of the greatest assets you could ever have from the perspective of, of wealth transfer, generational wealth transfer, you know, it's a, it's, it bypasses probate. It's income tax free. Um, it can be estate tax free depending on, on the size of your estate when, when someone does pass. Um, and, uh, John put a note in here that it's headache free compared to, you know, a real estate portfolio, which is, you know, tough, um, sometimes to, to transfer that value. So, um, especially if, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, step up and basis rules change. So it's a, it's such a fantastic tool to use on, on a lot of levels that, um, I think it is good to, to bring into a child's life if it's appropriate. And we, I think that's maybe where we're going to head next to talk about some of the pros and cons and determine, you know, if it's appropriate. And again, episode 21 is a great, a great one to listen to, to get a little more background on that. Well, before we go into the pros and cons, uh, maybe just touch on the Rockefeller method of creating, growing and transferring wealth, because this is a strategy that the wealthy have deployed for generations. And it's really quite simple when you think about it, but life insurance is the best way to transfer wealth from one generation to the next. And what the wealthiest families have done for generations is when there is a child born, the parents will take out a policy on that child 
And it creates this multi-generational plan because what happens with large amounts of wealth, family wealth, is that in order to preserve it and keep it in the family, you have to have strategies that best utilize the IRS tax code. And as we mentioned briefly in this episode, you know, what transfers tax-free? Well, the best asset that does so is a life insurance policy. So when you take out a policy on your child, as soon as they're eligible for it, in this case, as early as two weeks from birth, you are locking in a transfer of wealth. And if you can imagine this gets done for your kids and then your kids have kids and new policies are taken out at that time, this is just a a repeating formula to make sure that the wealth that is attained in one's lifetime continues to be transferred to the next generation. And that's really all it is. That That's the Rockefeller method where you take out policies on the newest additions of the family and you keep perpetuating that wealth from one generation to the next. You know, everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people complain about the 1% out there. They're kind of like, they've got that envy thing going on. And what most people don't realize is anyone could live like the 1%. Like, yeah, there, there might still be people that have more money than you, but it's a mindset. You know, most, I talk to so many people that all they're concerned about is saving as much money and then being able to live on that money. So they just, they work their whole life, try to save up a bunch of money and then they spend it all. And it's like, well, if you actually, as Nelson Nash points out in his book, if you thought several generations ahead, instead of thinking about the next 30 years, what if you thought about the next 70 years, your legacy could be a family that lives just like the 1% because they're not cannibalizing everything. They're not, you know, consuming everything that they, that they build. So there's this kind of consumer mindset that we're, that we get trained into us really by the kind of status quo financial planners out there. Um, whereas, um, you know, real producers of wealth, which that's what the 1% are, they produce and they just produce with capital instead of their, you know, instead of their hands or their, their know-how. And, um, that's, I think that's a huge thing to think about. And I think it's a big mindset shit mindset shift to really move away from that kind of consumer mentality. Yeah. I call it going from short sleeve to short sleeve when, you know, you're, you're stuck (laughs) in that lower middle class economic status level. When you think long-term and you initiate these policies and you fund an IBC policy to become your own bank, and then you pass this on you know, to your kids by getting policies on them and funding them in the same manner, you're basically allowing your family line to go from short sleeve to long sleeve, maybe in one generation. If you really do it right, you're going to have multiple policies, and yeah, it's going to happen. But then how do you maintain that? long sleeve, right? Continue to go long sleeve to long sleeve from one generation to the next. And by long sleeve, I simply just mean like any white collar job, right? Where you're doing less labor intensive work 
um, and maybe working more with your brain instead of your hands, so to speak. But that's what I mean um, going from short sleeve to long sleeve. Um, I, I liken it to my own family upbringing where my dad was a butcher and my mom was a cashier. You know, I, I consider uh, the way that we grew up very blue collar and short sleeve. In fact, my dad, um, you know, getting getting up in the morning, seeing him go to work. I mean, he, he wore a short sleeve shirt as a butcher, um, worked in a freezer. I don't know how he did it for so long, 35 years, but um, yeah, he was he was blue collar all the way through and through and disciplined to save, but didn't save it in the right places. And that's a whole nother segue. But anyway, short sleeve to long sleeve, how do you accomplish that? Well, this is what we do practice and implement uh, for everyone who's interested and, and takes the journey with us to learn more. That's a, that's a, a, you've said that analogy before. I I like it. I think it's fine. Next episode, we'll talk about going from short sleeves to no sleeves. (laughs) (laughs) And by that, you mean like hanging out at the beach in Costa Rica? No shirt on? Whatever that means to you. Yeah. Whatever that means to you. (laughs) Nice. All right. So, uh, we can get into a little bit of, we, we touched on it a little bit. And, and so there's kind of like pros and cons and like, when should you consider this? And I'll, I'll just say it for the third time. Episode 21 has some other great info on this. Um, you know, I, I guess the, the cons may be, you know, not every child will qualify. So we were kind of talking about, you know, if the, if for some reason, you know, there, there's a, like some childhood obesity going on, they may not, they may not qualify for it. Right. And, other than that, I would say the only other con, which we get into in 21, is that you can't fund as much into a child's policy because of what you mentioned earlier, where every dollar buys so much more death benefit than an adult that you very quickly start to exceed the underwriting limits. And so the, the policies tend to not be very big for a child's policy. And that's okay. That's okay. Because if, again, if you're doing IBC right and you're teaching your kids about money and having that conversation, which is so important when they're young, what are they going to do when they're in their working years? They're going to start their own policies, but you've given them a head start. Yeah. And the, and the flip side to not being able to, you know, pay a, a very big premium well, the other side to compounding is time. So the, the child has so much more time than an adult that those small premiums really start to create big results, 80 years, you know, that they have for that policy to build. So it becomes a, a pretty impressive thing. I would like to add one thing there too. I mean, if you were thinking about putting in large amounts of money on a policy for your child, well, first off, you know, we we would be having the conversation about, well, how much life insurance do you have in force on you and are you maximizing exactly. your human life value? Yep. Right? Because ultimately, if this money's going to be for the benefit of the child, we we should be looking at you first and we will look at you first before having that conversation about starting a policy on your child, but any additional amounts that can't go into a child's policy, that really should be going into a policy on the parent's life. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. It's, it's huge. Cause if you think about like, you know, what's going to do the most for your child, um, in the short term is not a cash value policy for them, 
what, what we'll do most is to make sure your income is protected and that everything works out the way that you as the adult are currently planning, no matter what happens. Awesome. Well, I think we covered quite a bit, even more than what we planned to. So this has turned into hopefully a lot of good information for our listeners out there. Agreed. And uh, yeah, so check out the show notes to get the other episode, episode 21. Put these two episodes together and um, you'll have a pretty good pretty good baseline of understanding for uh, juvenile policies. So, you know, if you find this helpful, head over to our website, the fifth edition.com. You can get access 50% off of a brand new online course that we have. And uh, if you can, and you think this is uh, useful information, leave us a review and give us a five-star review on any of the podcast platforms that you use, or just right on our website. And that helps us uh, even more get the word out. So thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone.